Amen. If you would, please turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is our text this morning. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray for your grace to be with us this morning. We pray that you might fill us with your Spirit, and that through your Spirit you might speak your word to us, and that through your Spirit we might receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For most of us, there isn't a whole lot that we can do apart from our vehicles, Right, we need our vehicles to get us from A to B, to run our errands, to get to work, to make visits, to do our grocery pickups. There's not a whole lot that we can do with, apart from our vehicles, and it's become incredibly essential to our lives, but there's one other item that is more essential, if not just as essential as the vehicle, that sort of has this control over our lives, and in fact, even causes us, perhaps many of us, great anxiety and stress and frustration without this item, and that item is none other than the key. Right? Most of you have anxiety and stress perhaps each and every morning because you lose your keys, because without the key you can't get into your vehicle, and without your vehicle you can't get to do the things that you need to do each day. I mean, how is it that such a small item can hold so much sway over our lives and even be able to determine what we can get done in our day. And that points us to another essential item in our lives. And I'm not talking about the phone, though there's something else to be discussed at a later point. But this is something else that you and I need, that we can't do a whole lot apart from this other item, and it's something that the Scriptures point us to specifically here in Acts, and that is the item or the key of the Holy Spirit of God. There isn't anything that we can do as Christians apart from the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the key to our walk with the Lord. It is the key to our relationships with one another. It is the key to our lives. It is the key even to our eternal destinies. 
as we go about this text and get our feet wet into the book of Acts. I'll tell you up front that today's sermon deals largely with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, though it's not a topical sermon on the Holy Spirit, but it, we will deal largely with the subject of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 4, Luke writes that Jesus commanded his disciples to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. That word, wait, tells us how essential is the Spirit of God in the lives of in the life of his people and in the life of the church. So really our main theme or the main reality of this morning's sermon is the necessity of the Spirit of God, without which we can't do anything as Christians. So, in thinking about the necessity of the Spirit of God, we're going to begin first with kingdom words. Again in verse 1, Luke says that he has dealt already, speaking or alluding to his previous book, which is the gospel according to Luke, where he deals with the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus had, did, had done during his life in ministry on earth and his life, until he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he was taken up unto heaven, but not until he first gave commandments through the Holy Spirit to his apostles. Now we come here to one of the, I think, one of the most frustrating passages in the entire Bible. And Luke is actually very good at this because he's did, he did this in his own in his own rendition of the gospel. But what he's doing here is that he takes 40 days of Jesus' ministry after his resurrection and sums it all up in a sentence. I mean, you can't help but ask, like, can you give us a little bit more details? Like, what was his ministry like? He did the same thing in his gospel when he says, well, Jesus continued to grow up and the grace of God was with him. But what we do know is that Jesus gave commands to his apostles, and one of those commands was to wait. Wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes. You are not to do anything else until the Spirit comes. But we can also see from Luke's gospel that Jesus did other things during his life, after his resurrection and before his ascension to the right hand of the Father. In Luke 24, verse 25, on the road to Emmaus with some disciples, he said to these disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus takes the scriptures and beginning with Moses from the very beginning and lays out for them how all these things essentially point to him. He's given them lessons in biblical interpretation. He's helping them to understand the scriptures. So we can see, at least during his 40 days of ministry before his ascension, he was helping his disciples to interpret the scriptures. And I think that we can also safely assume that during these 40 days, he would speak to them and help them to understand things concerning the kingdom of God. 
And throughout his life, and we see in the Gospels, many times Jesus gave a parable to help people, or namely his disciples, to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is important because throughout the book of Acts, what we are beginning to see is the kingdom of God on display so vividly through the work of the Spirit of Christ in the lives of the apostle as they continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can safely assume, I think, that Jesus is helping them to be prepared to interpret the work that they are about to become a part of and to witness with their own eyes. And some of the things they needed to understand concerning this kingdom is the invitation of the kingdom. And the invitation is the articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you would, the articulation of the gospel is God's sort of RSVP to the world. Like a, a couple would invite others to their wedding by sending it out an RSVP, save the date, come and celebrate with us. So the proclamation of the gospel is God's handing an RSVP to a lost world to come to the kingdom of God, to his heavenly kingdom, where there is joy everlasting, where there's no more joy, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more anger, no more distress, no more suffering, no more see evil and sin and wickedness. And if you accept this invitation, then return it before the end comes. And this invitation is to be given to all peoples. In Revelation 5.9, we see the scope of Christ's salvation. It says there, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you, the Lamb, Jesus, was slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Through the blood of Christ, Jesus ransoms people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And because that is the scope of Christ's salvation, that he will take people from all these different places and bring them into the kingdom of heaven, therefore the scope of the invitation is broad, that it is to be given to all people who have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel needs to be declared as a way of sending this invitation. Right? And this is what we intend to you for you this morning. If you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are extending an invitation for you to come to Christ, to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior who came into this world and lived a righteous life and died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that all those who believe in him might be saved from the judgment that their sins deserve. We cannot make you accept the invitation, but all we can do is extend the invitation and pray that the Spirit will compel you to come to Christ. So considering the things of the kingdom and what they were about to witness, the apostles would have needed to understand the acceptance of this invitation to the kingdom of God. Not only the invitation, but also to understand the acceptance. Giving this RSVP or this invitation can only generate one or two responses. Either a person will reject, 
and not believe, or they will accept. And this acceptance is believing. Seeing that the apostles were going to be used by Christ to declare the gospel and establish the first church they would have needed to understand what it is to accept this invitation, what it is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's essentially what it is. It is to believe, to have faith, to trust. It has nothing to do with anyone's works. The good works cannot save anyone. Good works can be likened to saying crafting an email, a nice email, or even a text message. Such mode of communication can only communicate so much about a person's thoughts and desires and emotions, especially with a text message. And so if we wanted to make sure that the person on the other end receiving our message is, is sure that we're fine, that we're not upset, we might say, no, yeah, I'm totally fine, and then like 10 exclamation points, and then five like smiling face emojis to try to convince the person that everything is fine. So we'll try to pretty up our language to convince the other person on the other end of the message that everything is fine. And when it comes to receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no need to pretty up our faith with our good works. The Bible says you just simply need to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. But with this acceptance, or trying to understand this acceptance, there also needs to be an understanding of the cost Luke 14, 25, it says, Now great crowds accompany Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, for those of you who are listening to this and have yet to believe in Christ as Savior, this might sound incredibly harsh. You might even be angry. Why are you saying that Jesus commands that if anyone is to be his disciple and believe in him, that they must, be, they must hate their own family members, to turn away, to turn their backs from him and follow Jesus? That's not exactly what Jesus is saying. But it's a question of allegiance. More than that, it's a question of love. Jesus says, if you are to be my disciple, then there may come a time when a decision will have to be made. And a prayer is that hopefully that never comes, but if the time should ever come where you are faced with a decision, either you will love and continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ or will you follow your job or your personal desires or even following your family and friends and your loved ones if they are somehow calling you to turn away from Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that his disciples will love Jesus first and foremost, and would be willing to turn away from all those things in order to follow Christ. 
But the other thing that Jesus makes clear in the Gospels is that he is not asking anyone to invest something so precious, such as their life, without, return, return, without returning something to them. In Mark 10, 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sister, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Albert Einstein once said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Jesus is the compound interest in the kingdom of heaven that those who invest their lives to following Jesus Christ, Jesus promises that he will pay a hundredfold. And even more, he will give them eternal life. Jesus gives more than what we put down. And with regards to the kingdom, trying to understand the, invi- the, the invitation, which is the articulation of the gospel, the acceptance, what does it mean to believe? We could assume, I think rightly, that Jesus would have helped the disciples or his apostles to understand the expectations of the kingdom. In other words, what are citizens of the kingdom of heaven like? What are their lives like? What do they love? What do they hate? How do they interact and relate to one another? How do they conduct themselves? And how are they distinct from the rest of the world? And we can spend hours upon hours going through the scriptures, helping us to understand what kingdom citizens are like. But just to name a few, we know from the scriptures that kingdom citizens do not neglect meeting together. We see this so immediately in Acts chapter 2 after the preaching of the gospel, when it tells us that this first church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, the prayers, and the fellowship. These were a people who wanted to get together. Hebrews 10.25 it tells us to not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Kingdom citizens are characterized by counting others more significant than themselves. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Kingdom citizens are characterized by a forgiving towards one another. Colossians 3.13, John 13.34, they are characterized by a love towards one another. They're characterized by a holiness that God requires, Hebrews 12.14, and repentance as well, Matthew 3, 2, and 8, turning away from sin, turning to Christ regularly, daily. These are some of the things the kingdom citizens are characterized by, and as God was going to use the apostles to proclaim the gospel, they need to understand what these kingdom citizens are to be like. As we continue to consider the necessity of the Spirit, 
Secondly, let us consider the Spirit's work. And according to the Scriptures, there are many things that the Spirit of God does, but remaining anchored to our passage, one of the Spirit's work is to apply. Again, in verse 4, while Jesus was staying with his apostles, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Again, this points to the necessity of the Spirit. There's nothing that they could go on to do without the Spirit of God coming upon them and reciting with them. Christ Jesus said that his apostles would be his witnesses throughout all the world. But before they could go on and do just that, there was one problem, and that is they needed to be equipped for the task. Right? Nobody is going to go out and try to fix their vehicle without the proper tools. No general is going to send out his soldiers in the midst of battle with a bunch of super soakers. Right? There's, the, there's the need to ensure that you have what you need in order to accomplish the task that's been given to you. Jesus Christ, through his work, he's accomplished our salvation. He's purchased our redemption. He's secured our forgiveness. He's reconciled us to God. He made our adoption possible. And some, what God has done in Christ is to make known to us his great love for us. And through the cross, express his invitation to all sinners to come to Christ and live in the great love of God. Now the Spirit's work is to then apply Christ's work on the cross to the life of those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verse 5 tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is through the Holy Spirit of God that we have this assurance of the love of God for our lives. It is the Spirit that gives us or makes this application of the love of God effectual in our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that takes the work of Christ and applies it to our lives so that we are, in fact, made righteous, so that we are, in fact, justified, so that we are, in fact, declared innocent, even though we were once guilty of our sins. So if these apostles are to be witnesses, Christ's witnesses, they, are not, they could not do so apart from the Spirit of Christ. Otherwise, how could they go on to preach about God's justifying sinners in Christ if they were not yet justified? How could they go on to proclaim God's gracious adoption of sinners if they have yet to be adopted themselves through the indwelling of the Spirit? How could they go on to evangelize about God's great love for sinners if they have yet to have the love of God poured into their own hearts through the abiding Holy Spirit? If they are going to go and tell of God's redemption, they needed to be redeemed themselves. Right? It's like someone describing to you or telling you about the, 
the Grand Canyon. Oh, it's wonderful. You have to go there. It's amazing. It's astounding. It is breathtaking. It'll leave you speechless in your response and say, wow, that sounds amazing. You must have had a really great time there. And the other person's like, actually, no, I never went. I just read about it. Right? It doesn't really mean that much. It means something, but it doesn't really mean that much if you haven't really experienced it yourself. And when it comes to the proclamation or the evangelism or the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the encouragement for us is that you're not sharing something that you haven't experienced yourself. Because essentially, the sharing of the gospel, yes, is telling of what Christ has done, but it's also telling people of something what you have experienced yourself. That you know the love of Christ. That you know the joy of receiving the forgiveness of your sins. That you know the joy of having eternal life. Because you've experienced it yourself. Because you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is essentially what it is to share the gospel. It is telling others what you have experienced yourself. The Spirit's work is to apply. The Spirit's work is also to empower. It is the Spirit that would empower the apostles to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the reaction of the religious teachers when they took Peter and John and they arrested them for proclaiming the gospel. In in Acts 4.13, when the religious teachers saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So you could tell by their words that these men had been with Jesus. How is that possible? Because the Spirit empowered them to proclaim the gospel. That even in the proclamation of the gospel, they sounded like Jesus. The Spirit equips believers with the boldness and the confidence to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. This confidence, and you see it throughout the book of Acts, this confidence doesn't come from within your own self. When the apostles were arrested and then freed, they didn't go to some kind of lecture or some kind of class, like, hey, how to generate confidence in sharing the gospel. But what they did was pray. They prayed for the boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel, and God answered their request. The Spirit gives courage even to continue to share the gospel, even in the midst of adversity. The encouragement is that if the Spirit empowered the apostles to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit can also empower us to share the gospel as well. If the Spirit of God abided with Jesus as Jesus headed towards the cross and the agony and the pain that came with the cross, that same Spirit resides in all those who believe in Christ Jesus. And therefore we can trust the Spirit will give us the courage that we need. The Spirit empowers and applies, the Spirit also assists. That is, the Spirit assists us in applying the work of Christ to everyday life. Yes, the Spirit of Christ applies the work of Christ to us, but then the Spirit in us also helps us to apply the work of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. 
And when it came to the apostles, this same spirit would help them to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ in the life of the church to help the church to understand what is your life to be like? How do you relate to one another? Is the reason why they would go on to establish elders and deacons for the life of the church. They did these things through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, the apostles and all those who believe are given also, in addition to this assistance in applying the gospel to every facet of our lives, we're giving something more. And that is the gift of prayer. The Spirit makes prayer possible so that when we do pray, we have the confidence and assurance that when we pray, God actually listens to us with an ear to respond in some way, shape, or form. It is the Spirit that makes this possible and gives us this access directly into the throne of grace. And as we continue throughout the book of Acts, what we see that everything that happens is, yes, foundationally because of Christ's work on the cross, but also a result of prayer. You and I, we can do everything right. We can do everything by the book. We can check everything off. We can give ourselves to doing so many things when it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel and being involved in community. There's a lot of things that we can do. There's a lot of things that we probably should do. There's some things that we probably shouldn't do. We can do everything right. We can do everything by the book. And in that way, we'll sort of be, sort of, if you can picture, sort of building this, sort of this, this large altar. We're putting it all together. We're putting everything into this altar, everything that is flammable. We got the wood there. And it's just built, it is mounted up high. But at the end of the day, an altar is just an altar. But an altar is meant to be set ablaze. And we can do everything right. And we can do all this work, but it will not mean anything. It will not amount to anything if it's not set ablaze by the fire of prayer. And that's why the most important thing that we can do as believers, as Christians, as a church, is give ourselves, dedicate ourselves to prayer. Because if God is going to bless any of our efforts, it is through the Spirit, through prayer, or because of prayer. It is prayer that sets the Spirit of God to action, not our works. The Spirit not only assists us, but the other thing about the Spirit's work, very briefly, is to bring the kingdom of God on earth. Christ Jesus, when he began his ministry, said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Because the king is here. The king has arrived. But the kingdom did not leave with Jesus when he ascended to the right hand of God. But the kingdom remained through the spirit of Christ. And Christ Jesus intended for his kingdom to be manifest in the world in a much greater way than it was during his life and ministry. And we might say, well, what could be greater than what Jesus did in his ministry? I mean, people were raised dead back to life. People were healed. I mean, it was actually Jesus on earth. But no, after his ascension began the greater work, because what do we see after Jesus' ascension? 
what we see is people being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the, the birth of the first church. It is the endurance of the church throughout history to this very day. It is sinners finding grace and forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the greater work. And that is what the Spirit has come to do in the world. And this is how he brings the kingdom of heaven down to the earth. So we continue to consider the work of the Spirit and the necessity of the Spirit. Lastly, let us consider the commands through the Holy Spirit. Again, Luke writes, I have dealt in his previous book with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, a question I had in reading that passage is, why does Luke write that Jesus gave these commands to these apostles through the Holy Spirit? I mean, even if you just if you take that out through the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't lose its significance or its importance. I mean, this is still Jesus giving commands to his apostles. So why did it feel it necessary to write that he gave these commands through the Holy Spirit? And here's, I think, why. Because I think this right here marks a period of transition. Luke began to write all that Jesus began to do and teach in his previous gospel. But I think he's indicating to us a change of emphasis to focus much more on the Spirit of Christ, who ultimately points to Jesus Christ. But he is directing the reader's attention now to the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit, throughout the book of Acts, is mentioned between 60 and 65 times more than any other book in the Bible. I think Luke is showing us here, and I, see, and I think he will go to length throughout the book to show us that everything that you see or that you read here in the book comes about through the Holy Spirit. If there's a preaching of the gospel, it is through the Holy Spirit. If there's evangelism, it is through the Holy Spirit. If we see believers engaging with one another and fellowshipping with one another, it is through the Holy Spirit. If we see the gospel continuing to go forth, even in the midst of suffering and persecution and adversity, it is through the Holy Spirit of God. And everything that we read in Acts comes about through the Holy Spirit of Christ. And it is this same Spirit through which God gave his commandments to the apostles that also dwells in us. And even as Christians, right, there are moments, there are seasons when we feel as if we are alone. We don't always feel as if the Spirit is actually in us. But we believe it to be so because the Bible tells us so. That means that in moments of joy, in the moments of happiness, in the moments of peace, or in the moments of distress or suffering and agony, the fact that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us means then that Christ also dwells in us, even in those seasons, even when we might feel as if we are alone. And that's encouraging because it means that Christ feels it all with you. 
I think we have a tendency at times, though we don't believe it in our minds, but I think at many times we tend to relate to the Spirit of Christ not as a person but as a force, as if this, he were this impersonal object that is sort of with us, we don't really feel like he's there, but we don't really relate to him like he's actually there. But the Scriptures make clear he's not a force, but he is a person. He's called the Comforter. And there is no greater comfort to us than to know that through the Spirit of Christ, Christ actually dwells with us. Which also means that He helps us in our time of need. The Spirit is not like this person who sort of gives this assistance from afar. Say, like, hey, I, I, I got you. I'm with you. All right? And you say, I, well, I need some help right now. And the Spirit, you can expect the Spirit never to say, well, I got something to do right now, but I'm sort of with you, sort of, and I'll help you in some way, but you got this. Right? The Spirit doesn't stand aloof from us, has like this hundred yard distance from us, but He's actually with us. He's a person who is with us. This is Christ with us. So either even in moments when you feel as if you are taking enemy fire, and all you can do is huddle up in the fetal position. All you can do is sort of cover your head to keep yourself safe. The Spirit of Christ is not standing afar off, but He's actually there with you. And He puts His hands on your shoulder and He says, Look at me. I am with you. I got you. And I will help you through this. The Spirit of Christ is a person there's a reason why Hebrews says that Jesus is our faithful high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, yes, because he knows what it is to be human and knows intimately and personally our weaknesses because he suffered them himself, but he also sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because his very presence, because his spirit is actually with us. The Spirit is a person who is always with us, leading me to conclude with, with this, and that is that if the Spirit of Christ is with us at all times, and that He is a person, and that He does not change, He does not become sort of this impersonal force at one point, and then another point He changes to be a actual person, but He is always a personal God to you, and what this means is that what we need is the conscious awareness of the abiding Spirit. There was a doctoral student who was invited by his professor to dine with him and along with other students. Now, during coffee, the professor's phone begins to ring. Now, this is the pre-digital age. The phone rings, and all they remember at that evening is the the, the professor's stark and furious response. Here's the phone, goes to the other room, he picks up the phone, and without listening, just furiously slams it back down. And after a dramatic pause, he says, isn't it amazing that any idiot with a dime can ring a bell in your house? <laughs> and fast forward to the present age, and now we carry this bell wherever we go. 
Now, I'm not trying to say that every person who rings the bell on your phone is an idiot. But what I'm saying is that, much very much like the key to our car, like we can't leave the house without our key, but we'll go back in and look for it frantically to get it. We'll also go back into our house to find our phone as well, because that's also become an essential item. And it's something that we carry with us. Right? It goes with us wherever we go, whether it's inside the house, whether it's outside of the house, whether it's just to the front yard. It always goes with us. Or even for some, though you might be ashamed to admit, that your phone you take with you even from one room in the house to another, even if those rooms are right next to each other. We have this item that always goes with us and so that we always have this awareness of sort of, we have an awareness when we forget these essential items and we have an awareness when we have it with us but how aware are we of Christ's Spirit abiding with us? Someone had once said, noise is a deceptive, addictive, and false tranquilizer. The tragedy of our world is never better summed up than in the fury of senseless noise that stubbornly hates silence. This age detests the things that silence brings to us namely encounter, wonder, and kneeling before God. We are easily distracted. We want distractions. We don't like not having anything to do, so we'll find something to distract ourselves with, whether it's watching something or whether it's getting on our phone. And my point is is that I think that these distractions that we're so accustomed to, this ringing of the bell that we carry with us wherever we go, can be an impediment to silence that could instead be used to pray. We don't like the silence. We'll try to get rid of the silence. But silence is a good thing. Thing because silence is where we can actually get before the throne of grace and pray. What we need is to discipline ourselves for this conscious awareness of the Spirit. And one way, perhaps, to consider in growing that awareness is just to simply spend time in prayer. And some of you pray regularly, perhaps even every day. Praise God for that. That is a rhythm, that is a means of grace that you should never, ever give up. Perhaps some of you could probably use a little bit more prayer. For some of you, it's probably inconsistent. For some of you, perhaps, you might not even remember the last time you sat down and took a period of time to just pray. What you need is a conscious awareness of the abiding Spirit of Christ, this personal God, this personal Christ who dwells with you. And one way to start is just to simply get on your knees and pray. I mean, just think, if you just spent 15 minutes, we can do anything for about 15 minutes. If you just spent 15 minutes a day, seven days a week, I mean, that's over 100 minutes a week that you'll have spent in prayer. And if you do that every week, for 52 weeks, throughout the entire year, that's about 90 hours of praying before the Lord. 
I mean, we can watch television or go on social media for more than 19 hours in a year. But imagine, I would think that for, for any of us who spend that kind of time, who spend much time in prayer, that you would see a difference in your life. Though it might be hard to notice it because it happens gradually, but if you might compare yourself to who you are right now, to who you might become towards the end of the year, I would venture to think that you would see a grand difference because you have been praying regularly and you've been praying fervently before the throne of grace. And we have these reminders, these bells ringing to us to remind us to pray, whether it is the bell of affliction, the bell of anxiety, whether it's the bell of turmoil, things happening at work, things happening at home, things happening between friends. These are all bells reminding you, hey, take a moment to pause and pray. All these things are a reminder to us of the personal God who is always with us. Giving ourselves to prayer will not leave anyone unchanged. As we continue to go through the book of Acts, what we see is the Spirit of Christ at work in the life of His people, in the life of His church. And what we see also is that these believers are a force to be reckoned with, not because they gave themselves to do a whole lot of things, and they did. More importantly, God used these early Christians because they depended on the Spirit of Christ. They prayed. It is prayer. It is prayer that will ultimately help us to understand Christ better. It is prayer that will help us to continue to love one another well. It is prayer that will help us and give us the courage and the boldness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is prayer that will raise our level of, of affections for Jesus Christ and grow in our, a, a greater capacity to love him more and a greater apprehension of what he has done for us on the cross. It is prayer that will ultimately bring people to salvation through evangelism. It is prayer uh, is one of the chief means by which Christ will expand his kingdom upon the world for the joy and salvation of sinners and for the glory of Jesus Christ.